Section two of Americans and Others. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section two of Americans and Others by Agnes Replier. The Mission of Humor. Quote, Laughter is my object, tis a property in a man essential to his reason. End quote. Thomas Randolph, The Muse's Looking Glass. American humor is the pride of American hearts. It is held to be our splendid national characteristic, which we flaunt in the faces of other nations, conceiving them to have been less favored by providence. Just as the most effective way to disparage an author or an acquaintance, and we have often occasion to disparage both, is to say that he lacks a sense of humor so the most effective criticism we can pass upon a nation is to deny it this valuable quality american critics have written the most charming things about the keenness of american speech the breadth and inside of american drollery the electric current in american veins and we reading these pleasant felicitations are wont to thank god with greater fervor than the occasion demands that we are more merry and wise than our neighbors Mr. Brander Matthews, for example, has told us that there are newspaper writers in New York who have cultivated a wit not unlike Voltaire's. He mistrusts this wit because he finds it corroding and disintegrating, but he makes the comparison with that casual assurance which is a feature of American criticism. Indeed, our delight in our own humor has tempted us to overrate both its literary value and its corrective qualities. We are never so apt to lose our sense of proportion. We are never so apt to lose our sense of proportion as when we consider those beloved writers whom we hold to be humorists because they have made us laugh. It may be conceded that as a people we have an abiding and somewhat disquieting sense of fun. We are nimble of speech. We are more prone to levity than to seriousness. We are able to recognize a vital truth when it is presented to us under the familiar aspect of a jest, and we habitually allow ourselves certain forms of exaggeration, accepting, perhaps unconsciously, Hazlitt's verdict, quote, lying is a species of wit, and shows spirit and invention, end quote. It is true also that no adequate provision is made in this country for the defective but valuable class without humor, which in England is exceedingly well cared for. American letters, American journalism, and American speech are so colored by pleasantries, so accentuated by ridicule, that the silent and stodgy men who are apt to present a nation's real strength hardly know where to turn for a little saving dullness. A deep vein of irony runs through every grade of society, making it possible for us to laugh at our own bitter discomfiture, and to scoff with startling distinctness at the evils which we passively permit. Just as the French monarchy under Louis the Fourteenth was wittily defined as despotism tempered by epigram, so the United States have been described as a free republic fettered by jokes and the taunt conveys a half-truth, which it is worth our while to consider. Now there are many who affirm that the humorist's point of view is, on the whole, the fairest from which the world can be judged. It is equally remote from the misleading sidelights of the pessimist and from the willful blindness of the optimist. 
it sees things with uncompromising clearness but it judges of them with tolerance and good temper moreover a sense of the ridiculous is a sound preservative of social virtues it places a proper emphasis on the judgments of our associates it saves us from pitfalls of vanity and self-assurance it lays the basis of that propriety and decorum of conduct upon which is founded the charm of intercourse among equals and what it does for us individually it does for us collectively our national apprehension of a jest fosters whatever grace of modesty we have to show we dare not inflate ourselves as superbly as we should like to do because our genial countrymen stand ever ready to prick us into sudden collapse it is the laugh we enjoy at our own expense which betrays us to the rest of the world perhaps we laugh too readily perhaps we are sometimes amused when we ought to be angry perhaps we jest when it is our plain duty to reform here lies the danger of our national light-mindedness for it is seldom light-heartedness we are no whit more light-hearted than our neighbors a carping english critic has declared that american humor consists in speaking of hideous things with levity and while so harsh a charge is necessarily unjust it makes clear one abiding difference between the nations an englishman never laughs except officially in punch over any form of political degradation he is not in the least amused by jobbery by bad service by broken pledges the seamy side of civilized life is not to him a subject for sympathetic mirth he can pity the stupidity which does not perceive that it is cheated and betrayed but penetration allied to indifference awakens his wondering contempt if you think it amusing to be imposed on an englishwoman once said to me you need never be at a loss for a joke in good truth we know what a man is like by the things he finds laughable we gauge both his understanding and his culture by his sense of the becoming and of the absurd if the capacity for laughter be one of the things which separates men from brutes the quality of laughter draws a sharp dividing line between the trained intelligence and the vacant mind the humor of a race interprets the character of a race and the mental condition of which laughter is the expression is something which it behooves the student of human nature and the student of national traits to understand very clearly now our american humor is on the whole good-tempered and decent it is scandalously irreverent reverence is a quality which seems to have been left out of our composition but it has neither the pitilessness of the latin nor the grossness of the teuton jest as mr gilbert said of sir beerbaum tree's hamlet it is funny without being coarse we have at our best the art of being amusing in an agreeable almost an amiable fashion but then we have also the rare good fortune to be very easily amused think of the current jokes provided by our entertainment week by week and day by day think of the comic supplement of our sunday newspapers designed for the refreshment of the feeble-minded and calculated to blight the spirits of any ordinarily intelligent household think of the debilitated jests and stories which a time-honored custom inserts at the back of some of our magazines it seems to be the custom of happy american parents to report to editors the infantile prattle of their engaging little children and the editors print it for the benefit of those who escape the infliction first-hand there is a story 
pleasant but piteous, of Voltaire's listening, with what patience he could muster, to a comedy which was being interpreted by its author. At a certain point the dramatist read, At this the Chevalier laughed, whereupon Voltaire murmured enviously, How fortunate the Chevalier was! I think of that story whenever I am struck afresh by the ease with which we are moved to mirth. A painstaking German student who has traced the history of humor back to its earliest foundations is of the opinion that there are eleven original jokes known to the world, or rather that there are eleven original and basic situations which have given birth to the world's jokes, and that all the pleasantries with which we are daily entertained are variations of these eleven originals, traceable directly or indirectly to the same source. There are times when we are disposed to think eleven too generous a computation, and there are less weary moments in which the inexhaustible supply of situations still suggests fresh possibilities of laughter. Granted that the ever-fertile mother-in-law jest and the one about the talkative barber were venerable in the days of Plutarch, there are others, more securely and more deservedly rooted in public esteem, which are by comparison new. Christianity, for example, must be held responsible for the missionary and cannibal joke, of which we have grown weary unto death, but which, nevertheless, possesses astonishing vitality and exhibits remarkable breadth of treatment. Sidney Smith did not disdain to honor it with a joyous and unclerical quatrain and the agreeable author of Rab and His Friends has told us the story of his fragile little schoolmate, whose mother had destined him for a missionary. Though goodness knows there wasn't enough of him to go round among many heathen. To Christianity is due also the somewhat ribald mirth which has clung for centuries about St. Peter as gatekeeper of heaven. We can trace this mirth back to the rude jests of the earliest miracle plays. We see these jests repeated over and over again in the folklore of Latin and Germanic nations, and if we open a comic journal today, there is more than a chance that we shall find St. Peter, key in hand, uttering his time-honored witticisms. This well-worn situation depends as a rule upon that common element of fun-making, the incongruous. St. Peter invaded by airships, St. Peter outwitting a squad of banner-flying suffragettes, St. Peter losing his saintly temper over the expansive philanthropy of millionaires. Now and then a bit of true satire, like Mr. Kipling's Tomlinson, conveys its deeper lesson to humanity. A recently told French story describes a lady of good reputation, family, and estate, presenting herself fearlessly at the gates of heaven. St. Peter receives her politely and leads her through a street filled with lofty and beautiful mansions, any one of which she thinks will satisfy her requirements, but to her amazement they pass them by. Next they come to more modest but still charming houses with which she feels she could be reasonably content, but again they pass them by. Finally they reach a small and mean dwelling in a small and mean thoroughfare. This, says St. Peter, is your habitation. This, cries the indignant lady, I could not possibly live in any place so shabby and inadequate. I am sorry, madam, replies the saint urbanely, but we have done the best we could with the materials you furnished us. 
there are no bounds to the loyalty with which mankind clings to a well-established jest there is no limit to the number of times a tale will bear retelling occasionally we give it a fresh setting adorn it with fresh accessories and present it as a newborn to the world but this is only another indication of our affectionate tenacity i have heard that caustic jibe of queen elizabeth's ain't the bishop's lady and the bishop's wife the tutors have a biting wit of their own retold at the expense of an excellent lady the wife of a living american bishop and the story of the girl who professing religion gave her earrings to a sister because she knew they were taking her to hell a story which dates from the early wesleyan revivals in england i have heard located in philadelphia and assigned to one of mr torrey's evangelistic services we still resort as in the days of sheridan to our memories for our jokes and to our imaginations for our facts moreover we americans have jests of our own poor things for the most part but our own they are current from the atlantic to the pacific they appear with commendable regularity in our newspapers and comic journals and they have become endeared to us by a lifetime of intimacy the salient characteristics of our great cities the accepted traditions of our mining camps the contrast between east and west the still more familiar contrast between the torpor of philadelphia and brooklyn in the midst of life says mr oliver hereford we are in brooklyn and the uneasy speed of new york these things furnish abundant material for everyday american humor there is for example the encounter between the boston girl and the chicago girl who in real life might often be taken for each other but who in the american joke are as sharply differentiated as the eskimo and the hottentot and there is the little boston boy who always wears spectacles who is always named waldo and who makes some innocent remark about literary ethics or the conduct of life we have known this little boy too long to bear a parting from him indeed the mere suggestion that all bostonians are forever immersed in emerson is one which gives unfailing delight to the receptive american mind it is a poor community which cannot furnish its archaic jest for the diversion of its neighbors the finest example of our bulldog resoluteness in holding on to a comic situation or what we conceive to be a comic situation may be seen every year when the twenty-second of february draws near and the shops of our great and grateful republic break out into an eruption of little hatchets by which curious insignia we have chosen to commemorate our first president these toys occasionally combined with sprigs of artificial cherries are hailed with unflagging delight and purchased with what appears to be patriotic fervor i have seen letter carriers and post-office clerks wearing little hatchets in their buttonholes as though they were party buttons or temperance badges it is our great national joke which i presume gains point from the dignified and reticent character of george washington and from the fact that he would have been sincerely unhappy could he have foreseen the senile character of a jest destined through our love of absurdity our careful cultivation of the inappropriate to be linked forever with his name the easy exaggeration which is a distinctive feature of american humor and about which so much has been said and written has its counterpart in sober and truth-telling england though we are always amazed when we find it there and fall to wondering as we never wonder at home in what spirit it was received there are two kinds of exaggeration exaggeration of statement which is a somewhat primitive form of humor 
and exaggeration of phrase which implies a dexterous misuse of language a skilful juggling with words sir john robinson gives as an admirable instance of exaggeration of statement the remark of an american in london that his dining-room ceiling was so low that he could not have anything for dinner but soles sir john thought this could have been said only by an american only by one accustomed to have a joke swiftly catalogued as a joke and suffered to pass an english jester must always take into account the mental attitude which finds gulliver's travels incredible when mr edward fitzgerald said that the church at woodbridge was so damp that fungi grew about the communion rail woodbridge ladies offered an indignant denial when dr thompson the witty master of trinity observed of an undergraduate that all the time he could spare from the neglect of his duties he gave to the adornment of his person the sarcasm made its slow way into print whereupon an intelligent british reader wrote to the periodical which had printed it and explained painstakingly that inasmuch as it was not possible to spare time from the neglect of anything the criticism was inaccurate exaggeration of phrase as well as the studied understatement which is an even more effective form of ridicule seem natural products of american humor they sound wherever we hear them familiar to our ears it is hard to believe that an english barrister and not a texas ranchman described boston as a town where respectability stalked unchecked mazarin's plaintive reflection nothing is so disagreeable as to be obscurely hanged carries with it an echo of wyoming or arizona mr gilbert's analysis of hamlet's mental disorder hamlet is idiotically sane with lucid intervals of lunacy has the pure flavor of american wit a wit which finds its most audacious expression in burlesquing bitter things and which misfits its words with diabolic ingenuity to match these alien jests which sound so like our own we have the whispered warning of an american usher also quoted by sir john robinson who opened the door to a late comer at one of mr matthew arnold's lectures will you please make as little noise as you can sir the audience is asleep and the comprehensive remark of a new england scholar and wit that he never wanted to do anything in his life that he did not find it was expensive unwholesome or immoral this last observation embraces the wisdom of the centuries solomon would have endorsed it and it is supremely quotable as expressing a common experience with very uncommon felicity when we leave the open field of exaggeration that broad area which is our chosen territory and seek for subtler qualities in american humor we find here and there a witticism which while admittedly our own has in it an old-world quality the epigrammatic remark of a boston woman that men get and forget and women give and forgive shows the fine sharp finish of sydney smith or sheridan a philadelphia woman's observation that she knew there could be no marriages in heaven because well women were there no doubt in plenty and some men but not a man whom any woman would have is strikingly french the word of a new york broker when mr roosevelt sailed for africa wall street expects every lion to do its duty equals in brevity and malice the keen-edged satire of italy 
no sharper thrust was ever made at prince or potentate the truth is that our love of a jest knows no limit and respects no law the incongruities of an unequal civilization we live in the land of contrasts have accustomed us to absurdities and reconciled us to ridicule we rather like being satirized by our own countrymen we are very kind and a little cruel to our humorists we crown them with praise we hold them to our hearts we pay them any price they ask for their wares but we insist upon their being funny all the time once a humorist always a humorist is our way of thinking and we resent even a saving lapse into seriousness on the part of those who have had the good or the ill fortune to make us laugh england is equally obdurate in this regard her love of laughter has been consecrated by oxford oxford the dignified refuge of english scholarship which passed by a score of american scholars to bestow her honors on our great american joker and because of this love of laughter so desperate in a serious nation english jesters have enjoyed the uneasy privilege of a court fool look at poor hood what he really loved was to wallow in the pathetic to write such harrowing verses as the bridge of sighs and the song of the shirt which achieved the rare distinction of being printed like the beggar's petition on cotton handkerchiefs and the lady's dream every time he broke from his traces he plunged into these morasses of melancholy but he was always pulled out again and reharnessed to his jokes he would have liked to be funny occasionally and spontaneously and it was the will of his master the public that he should be funny all the time or starve lord chesterfield wisely said that a man should live within his wit as well as within his income but if hood had lived within his wit which might then have possessed a vital and lasting quality he would have had no income his role in life was like that of a dancing bear which is held to commit a solecism every time it settles warily down on the four legs nature gave it the same tyrannous demand hounded mr eugene field along his joke-strewn path chicago struggling with vast and difficult problems felt the need of laughter and required of mr field that he should make her laugh he accepted the responsibility and as a reward his memory is hallowed in the city he loved and derided new york echoes this sentiment new york echoes more than she proclaims she confirms rather than initiates and when mr francis wilson wrote some years ago a charming and enthusiastic paper for the century magazine he claimed that mr field was so great a humorist as to be what all great humorists are a moralist as well but he had little to quote which could be received as evidence in a court of criticism and many of the paragraphs which he deemed it worth while to reprint were melancholy instances of that jaded wit that exhausted vitality which in no wise represented mr field's mirth-loving spirit but only the things which were ground out of him when he was not in a mirthful mood the truth is that humor as a lucrative profession is a purely modern device and one which is much to be deplored the older humorists knew the value of light and shade their fun was precious in proportion to its parsimony the essence of humor is that it should be unexpected that it should embody an element of surprise that it should startle us out of that reasonable gravity which after all must be our habitual frame of mind 
but the professional humorist cannot afford to be unexpected the exigencies of his vocation compel him to be relentlessly droll from his first page to his last and this accumulated drollery weighs like lead compared to it sermons are thistle-down and political economy is gay it is hard to estimate the value of humor as a national trait life has its appropriate levities its comedy side we cannot see it clearly and see it whole without recognizing a great many absurdities which ought to be laughed at a great deal of nonsense which is a fair target for ridicule the heaviest charge brought against american humor is that it never keeps its target well in view we laugh but we are not purged by laughter of our follies we jest but our jests are apt to have a kitten's sportive irresponsibility the lawyer offers a witticism in place of an argument the diner out tells an amusing story in lieu of conversation even the clergyman does not disdain a joke heedless of dr johnson's warning which should save him from that pitfall spartanus furnishes sufficient excuse for the impertinence of children and with purposeless satire the daily papers deride the highest dignitaries of the land yet while always to be reckoned with in life and letters american humor is not a powerful and consistent factor either for destruction or for reform it lacks for the most part a logical basis and the dignity of a supreme aim moliere's humor amounted to a philosophy of life he was wont to say that it was a difficult task to make gentlefolk laugh but he succeeded in making them laugh at that which was laughable in themselves he aimed his shafts at the fallacies and the duplicities which his countrymen ardently cherished and he scorned the cheaper wit which contents itself with mocking at idols already discredited as a result he purged society not of the follies that consumed it but of the illusion that these follies were noble graceful and wise we do not plough or sow for fools says a russian proverb they grow of themselves but humor has accomplished a mighty work if it helps us to see that a fool is a fool and not a prophet in the market-place and if the man in the market-place chances to be a prophet his message is safe from assault no laughter can silence him no ridicule weaken his words carlyle's grim humor was also drilled into efficacy he used it in orderly fashion he gave it force by a stern principle of repression he had what wise men has not an honest respect for dullness knowing that a strong and free people argues best as mr bagahot puts it in platoons he had some measure of mercy for folly but against the whole complicated business of pretense against the pious and respectable and patriotic hypocrisies of a successful civilization he hurled his taunts with such true aim that it is not too much to say there has been less real comfort and safety in lying ever since these are victories worth recording and there is a big battlefield for american humor when it finds itself ready for the fray when it leaves off firing squibs and settles down to a compelling cannonade when it aims less at the superficial incongruities of life and more at the deep-rooted delusions which rob us of fair fame it has done its best work in the field of political satire where the bigelow papers hit hard in their day 
where Nast's cartoons helped to overthrow the Tweed dynasty, and where the indolent and luminous genius of Mr. Dooley has widened our mental horizon. Mr. Dooley is a philosopher, but his is the philosophy of the looker-on, of that genuine unconcern which finds St. George and the Dragon to be both a trifle ridiculous. He is always undisturbed, always illuminating, and not infrequently amusing. But he anticipates the smiling indifference with which those who come after us will look back upon our enthusiasms and absurdities. Humor, as he sees it, is that thrice-blessed quality which enables us to laugh when otherwise we would be in danger of weeping. We are ridiculous animals, observes Horace Walpole unsympathetically, and if angels have any fun in their hearts, how we must divert them. It is this clear-sighted, non-combative humor which Americans love and prize, and the absence of which they reckon a heavy loss. Nor do they always ask a loss to whom. Charles Lamb said it was no misfortune for a man to have a sulky temper. It was his friends who were unfortunate, and so with the man who has no sense of humor. He gets along very well without it. He is not aware that anything is lacking. He is not mourning his lot. What loss there is his friends and neighbors bear. A man destitute of humor is apt to be a formidable person, not subject to sudden deviations from his chosen path, and incapable of frittering away his elementary forces by pottering over both sides of a question. He is often to be respected, sometimes to be feared, and always, if possible, to be avoided. His are the qualities which distance enables us to recognize and value at their worth. He fills his place in the scheme of creation, but it is for us to see that his place is not next to ours at table, where his unresponsiveness narrows the conversational area and dulls the contagious ardor of speech. He may add to the wisdom of the ages, but he lessens the gaiety of life. End of section 2 Read by Mary Schneider